Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. to the Neil Haley show and oh I put my education hat back on and oh we're going to talk reading and oh I'm a former uh, developmental therapist birth to three then I've done and taught reading for X amount of years so my guest today Lori Lynn is that is an early childhood educator and she really tries to raise a reader and we're going to talk about today top four things families can do to raise a reader Lori Lynn thanks for stopping by how are you Thank you so much for having me, Neil. I appreciate it. And you know, I understand the importance of reading and especially teaching reading for X amount of years. And I think we miss a a boat in a lot of ways of immersing young readers, don't we? We do. And it's sometimes just lack of time. And it's sometimes just lack of understanding how simple it can really be, actually. Exactly. How simple and how you're able to do it. So... Let's talk about four things families should do to raise a reader. And what age are we talking right now? I'm talking, my expertise is is preschool through, well, even ages two through seven-ish. Yeah, preschool uh, through. I worked, worked with those youngers, especially when I was a developmental therapist, birth to three. And I also worked in the uh, age group of, you know, in teaching sometimes those younger kids when I would do substitute teaching. So I understand as an elementary ed teacher. So what's the first thing? Well, the first thing is to let them see you read, right? Children need to understand the purpose for things. We all need to understand the purpose um, for when we're learning things. Uh, I train teachers as well. And when you ask yourselves, why aren't teachers picking up on the things we're learning? It's because they don't really know why and they don't see a purpose for it. And so you really have to be good about showing teachers a purpose for what they're learning and to change their behaviors. And um, it's the same for young children. They need to see a purpose for reading. And the easiest way is just talk about what you're reading. How many times do we read a recipe and or the back of a um, food container to see what the ingredients are? Let them see you talk about it and say, I'm reading the ingredients because um, I want to know what's in here, so I'm feeding you healthy things. <laughs> no. That's okay. No, that's not a problem at all. I'm so sorry. <laughs> all right. And um, yeah, so that's really important to do. And also, I'm just going to kind of move down here. That's okay. I'm, I'm babysitting my grand dog, actually, and he's a 100-pound golden, and he's big. And so he's not quite used to my house, but he is on us actually. But so that's the important thing. So like when you're at the grocery store, talk about the things you're choosing and why, and yeah. let them let the children see you have a purpose for reading and let them see you read books. Um, and, and those other things that you magazines, newspapers, things online, of course, but it's better to minimize as much online as you can, because we get enough of that. So just to think about, you know, when you're washing your clothes, what are the ingredients um, or what are the materials in your clothes and why are you washing them a certain way? Those things you do every day, just let them see you um, read and have a purpose for that reading. So so true, let them see you read. So what's number two? Number two is pointing out the print in your environment, which is a a step beyond just um, letting them see you read it. That's what you do when you can do that in the car, right? Just pointing out the stop sign. Children learn how to write S-T-O-P pretty quickly if you're pointing it out to them and say, oh, that's 
stop and see those letters s-t-o-p those together say the word stop and my boys actually learned to be backseat drivers by reading the signs <laughs> they would see speed limit 45 and they'd always look to see if i was matching that right so i'm like well i guess they're they're reading their environmental print that's a good thing and keeping me um um honest and so things like Target, Walmart, you know, when children say, hey, that's Target, really say, you are reading. Let them know you're reading. And they'll go, oh, that's reading. Absolutely, that's reading. Because so many children say, I can't read. But you know that says Target. How do you know that? Well, because of the red line. Line. Yeah, yeah. so all those environmental print things. And when children begin to see themselves as readers, and they gain that confidence in their ability. And anytime we gain confidence, we're more brave and or we're braver and we are motivated to try more. So that's number two. Um, number three is, of course, then you read to your child. And don't let that, I, I always tell families, don't let that overwhelm you because my saying is one book is enough. One book is truly enough if you do it every night. Now, it's going to probably lead to more books, which is wonderful. But how many parents are working, you know, sometimes six to six and they come home and they have to cook meals and then they're thinking, oh, my gosh, I need to read books. And it's, it's another chore. So if you can relax into the fact that it's about the interaction with your young child that closeness, the joy, the comfort, the warmth they feel with you and a book um, to say that is hugely important to their motivation to read and their comfort in reading. So just pull them close, have a soft place to not only for you to breathe slowly, but for them to just take that breath and settle into a book. And um, it's an intimate conversation, right? Yes. Reading a book is an intimate conversation. And actually, speaking of conversations, this is another point that I actually should make five points, Neil, that I'm thinking about this, because just having conversations with your child is important uh, because people don't know this. I didn't know this till about six years ago, <coughs> that oral language is the basis of all early literacy. So talking to your child is actually helping them to be a good reader because it builds vocabulary, right? So the more vocabulary they have <clears throat> in there, in their brain, then the more they're going to be confident when they come across those words and know what they mean. All right. And number four. <laughs> and number four, uh, let's see, it's utilizing the power of music and that's why I wrote the book that I wrote, I'm a Pig. And the power of music is pretty well known, we, especially now with YouTube and, and uh, TikTok and all those. We see these elderly people with Alzheimer's that they forget lots of things. <clears throat> but when it comes to sitting down at the piano or hearing a song, they remember it, right? And everybody's always surprised. But there's, there's research behind that because the brain... And when you hear music, it involves all of the brain. Both sides of the brain are lit up. So music lights up our brain in ways that nothing else can. So my background is music. I was a music major for two years, and then I became an early childhood major. And it's perfect um, blending for me because in the early childhood classroom, I used my guitar and my music all the time, which is where I wrote most of my songs that are on my CD is in the classroom or <laughs> with, my, with my own children. And I saw in the classroom, <clears throat> when children would get a book that was based on a song, they were like, they weren't reading, typically reading, but if it was a book based on a song, they'd like, oh, I know that. And they'd pretend to read and feel really confident. <clears throat> awesome. Yeah. Where can people find information on you? Where can they go? <laughs> um, they can go to overallbuddies.com. And everything you need to know will be there. Um, my book, uh, my book is called I'm a Pig, and it's based on one of the most requested songs. And I did some really um, specific, intentional, early literacy things in there. And I always wished I could have done this in my 30s when I wrote that song. But a lot of life happened, and I'm actually a grandma at this point. And the good news is, 
I know so much more about what makes a quality book than I did when I was 30 because of all my experience and trainings myself. And so it's really a good thing. And there's purpose in life, right? For every, to everything, there is a season. And now this book I wrote has so much intentional quality, early literacy strategies in it, but it's also really fun. And so that's something you can find on my website, as well as my YouTube videos that have won awards, which is nice. And um, the, yeah, so I'm a pig was a international songwriting competition finalist. And so I just got in this only about seven months before COVID. So you know what oh. that means. <laughs> so it was going really strong for about seven months and then whoop, like every other business, but we're getting back to it. All right. Okay. We're, um, so I appreciate you coming by and thanks for coming on the show. I'm so sorry. Thank you so much, Neil. You're welcome. You're listening and watching the Neil Haley show. We'll be back in just a moment. We're back to the Neil Haley show. My guest today is going to talk about becoming a professional wrestler, a film director, music, everything. Wade Simmons, Wade, what's up, man? How are you? I'm doing great. How about yourself? Good, good, good. So what it started first was the entertainment stuff. When did you get the entertainment bug? At what age do you want to be involved in that? Uh, well, I've been writing and making up characters and dealing with characters since I was a little kid. Um, it was always something I wanted to do because, you know, like growing up, I, I used to love shows like Full House, uh, Hanging with Mr. Cooper. Okay. A uh, very big fan of Martin. Oh, yeah. You know, even, even All in the Family and the Jefferson. So it was always something that I wanted to do. And um, and then as far as, uh, you know, working in the funeral business, I know this might sound odd, but as a kid, that was something that I wanted to do, too. Oh, yeah. I remember the whole funeral thing. That just makes it. Are you going to write a book with all these different experiences? Uh, possibly, yes. <laughs> you got to think about that. No, so so how long were you working in the funeral business? So I've been working in the funeral business for 11 years now. I started in high school. So are you a funeral director? Is that what you are? Well, when I pass the test, I will be. <laughs> hey, then that's when, so you'll open up your own funeral parlor? No, I mean, when, 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 I think when you work at one, I think anybody that works for one probably knows what I said. I, I wouldn't do it, you know, I mean, because it takes up a lot of your time, you know. You got a all lot of things, you have all these other things to do, no doubt. Yeah, and a lot of liability too. Really? Why was those liabilities for funeral? So the person's already dead. I mean, yeah, but I mean, if something goes wrong, you know, I mean, it's it's one of those business when something go wrong, it can go wrong. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, it's 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 not like you can go to McDonald's and, you know, you can mess up somebody order and you can just give them another burger. But if you mess up somebody you give someone else, else, has that ever happened where someone giving the wrong body to somebody? Um, it has happened at some places, but, you know, that that's one of those things that you you know, you take precautions so that it won't happen. You know what I mean? Okay, what about other people's ashes? Has that happened? Uh, it may have happened at some places. I mean, I Not don't your think place. We, we can't say uh, you're where you're working. No, but it, these things happen. I mean, it, I mean, it. I think some of everybody probably have dealt with something like that, you know? I mean, it's just one of those things that you don't want to happen. Um, but, you know, that's why you have to take all the precautions so that it doesn't happen, you know. All right. So tell me about specifically now for what your gimmick is going to be in pro wrestling. Just how long you been training in pro wrestling? So I've started training for pro wrestling last year around like October. Um, my gimmick, of course, is going is to be the million dollar mortician. Uh, you know, the, the, that's the gimmick that I'm going with. <laughs> Well, I have to get back and make my comeback in pro wrestling at six foot ten. I'll have to wrestle you in Chicago. That would be. Oh man! Oh man! It sounds good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what, what what's going to be your finisher as the mortician? Uh, I'm thinking about. Um, you remember that move, like the rolling dice? Okay. It's kind of like a, you know, like I was thinking about doing that, but maybe calling it like the death roll, like how the alligator when he gets his prey, he does the. You know, like the little role. <laughs> so the film stuff, what film directing have you done and stuff? Been, you know. uh, so far, I've I produced almost about 20 short films. Okay. Is it hard? 
So what types of short films? Do you have an IMBD? Um, I actually do have one, but I got to update it. Yeah. But you do have one. Okay. Yeah, I do have one, but I just got to update it. So what projects are you looking to do? Uh, so right now, well, I, I have like my own little web series, just a little quirky web series. But um, next, I think what well, next weekend, we're going to be shooting two more episodes. So I'm excited about that. Okay. All right. And so how much work is involved in filming those episodes? Uh, so, wow, we all together because we, we've been working on like this web series since like 2019. So we have probably shot over like 20 episodes, but probably, you know, like you may shoot more than you put out. You know what I'm saying? How do you monetize a web series? Uh, so in total, ooh, yeah, I think we got about like 25 episodes so far. So how do you monetize those episodes on the web series? Oh, well, I, I haven't, I haven't like started monetizing them yet. I mean, I do pay everybody that's involved, but I mean, I, at the end of the day, I'm the one that probably don't get anything from it, but. <laughs> you're paying your actors, but yet usually you're not getting paid. Oh man. Yeah, yeah I mean, but we, we, get, we gotta fix that. <laughs> you gotta fix that. Oh man. So what's the web series about? Uh, so basically, um, it's like one that I, I I made like a fictionalized version of my life. Basically, it, it's kind kind of it's like a, just a fictionalized version of my life. Basically, I mean, it would have been much bigger if I had a lot of more money, but you know, it, it it's what I can do with what I have now. <laughs> you raise money for it. Yeah, that's true. But you know, I, I'm one of them people that like, you know, I try. I mean, I try to kind of work for it myself that way. You know, people are a little funny when you when you kind of ask for donations and stuff. You know, do you have, I mean, do you, do you know, music. Do you, so, do you have music as well? Do you music? Yep. Uh, yeah, I have. I have a friend of mine named Akira. She produces all my music for me. What kind of? What is it? Hip hop? What is it? Your music. Uh, some of it. Some of it is hip hop, and then some of it's like real soft music. Have you monetized your music yet? Uh, well, not yet, but my wrestling theme song, I am gonna copyright that. <laughs> so, okay, so you can't wait to wrestle. And are you gonna be doing some of the film production for the, some of these promotions? Is that a hope? Uh, uh, possibly, but if not, I'm gonna just keep doing it for myself, you know? Do you wanna travel all over the country and wrestle? Uh, yeah, I plan to. I, I actually, you know, the funny thing about how I got into wrestling, uh, I wanted to make a documentary about becoming a professional wrestler. That's a good and, idea. Yeah, and so what I started to do, I said that I was just going to document, like, my journey into, you know, wrestling. So I'm, I'm in the process of getting that going, too. See, I love the gimmick, love the idea. Where can people connect with you? Where is the best place? Uh, so you can find me on Facebook. I'm on Instagram, WayJedi99. Um, I'm a huge Star Wars fan. So, you know, I'm, I'm not a hard guy to find at all. <laughs> all right, well, appreciate it, Wade. Thanks for stopping by. Oh, uh, thank you. I appreciate you. Listening, you're listening and watching the Neil Haley Show. We'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Every Child Can Learn. And I'm excited to welcome the program, Phil Maycomer. Phil, how are you? What's going on? Oh, Neil, I'm so excited about our episode today because we are going to get some solutions for a very pressing problem in education in this episode. So I am excited to get started. Absolutely. I'm excited as well. And our question today is, what are recommendations for educators who are looking to reconnect with their profession? Boy, as we know, the pandemic has affected many professions. And people are leaving the workforce in droves, which, as you've probably seen on the news, is referred to as the great resignation. Educators are most definitely included in this resignation movement, reevaluating their commitment to the field of education. The largest teachers union, the National Education Association, which we refer to as the NEA, completed a recent survey in early 2022 and reported 55%, I repeat, 55% of teachers are going to leave the profession sooner than they had originally planned. Now, in my own words, 
I feel that teachers have lost the joy of teaching. TV uncomfortable conversations on this very concerning topic. And I identified the problems that needed to be solved and how to solve them. In this episode, my guest, Mei-Ling Chan, and I will talk about how educators can move beyond burnout and reconnect with their calling to teach. Let me tell you about Mei-Ling Chan. Mei-Ling is a best-selling author and co-founder of the company Exceptional Learning. She has served in the field of education and speech language pathology since 2006. Mei-Ling excels at supporting disability-focused thought leaders and creating digital products that make a real difference in the global special education ecosystem. She facilitates national and international partnerships with disability experts to support the creation of professional development courses, digital services, and virtual therapy. After publishing three Amazon best-selling books in 18 months, May Ling continues to spotlight industry leaders on her Exceptional Leaders podcast. In my opinion, May Ling's middle name is Helper. She is so passionate about helping parents, educators, therapists, and people of all abilities to expand on their creative ideas and to achieve success. In a recent conversation that I had with her, she shared with me that she finally has found the perfect fit for her glass slipper, her true why. Mei-Ling wears her heart on her sleeve, and I am excited for our conversation in this episode to touch other people's hearts and help educators remember their why. So I'd love to welcome you to Every Child Can Learn, Mei-Ling, and so excited for our conversation today. Thank you so much, Phil, for having me. I really enjoy it. Well, I let's get right down to it because you really have reconnected with your profession. I don't know that you have reached burnout yourself, but we all struggle with feeling overwhelmed, feeling like we need to ask ourselves the question of, are we really making a difference? And doing that taking stock, so to speak. And I think that we're at a very critical time in education where people are losing what their eye on the prize should be, which is the why they got into teaching to begin with, why they're serving in education, because there's so much minutia around, right? And I think that people get very overwhelmed with that. What do you see? Absolutely. Um, it's unfortunate, but it's happening in all areas of education. And so I guess I kind of represent the speech language pathologists, you know, who are working for school districts um, and are managing large caseloads, um, also having to cover several schools. Um, and then there's also an SLP shortage, which has been going on for years already. So, you know, in addition to all of the other added responsibilities, burnout is definitely at the top of the list. And I think you also represent educators in general. And I usually define educators, including the therapists that serve uh, all of our kids with different abilities. But educators are not just teachers. We also have our paraeducators. We have our librarians. We have our guidance counselors. We have our after-school program people that help. Everyone steps up in the life of a child, right? Absolutely. So if we were to say, what are some initial steps that you guide and train educators on, including therapists, including our paraprofessional staff, including our hardworking classroom teachers, what is like maybe the first thing that you have them identify to start reconnecting with their profession? Well. I think it's really important to 
be an individual in your role. And I think a lot of times we're always looking at everyone else and saying, oh my gosh, you know, this person is just a powerhouse and they can do it all. And that really adds to your um, feeling of value and self-worth on the teams. And I think the most important thing is to really take some time and identify what are your strengths, like your innate strengths and talents. And, and that exercise alone, Phil, has proven to be just so cathartic for people um, to, you know, to not so much look at, well, I'm not good at paperwork, but rather look at, I am really creative or I'm super organized, or I am just fantastic at connecting with my fellow teachers, um, you know, when we're collaborating. I mean, just making that list um, really helps for people to just feel good about themselves again, you know, and reconnect with who they are and, and their personal um, innate talents. You know, I love that you use the word individual. Because I think one of the biggest problems that all of us face is comparing ourselves to other people. And, you know, my mom used to say to me when I was a young adult, Philly, skate your own game. She knew I loved to watch ice skating. I loved to watch ice skating with my mom on television, especially during the Olympics. And she would always emphasize that. Don't worry about what other people are doing. Skate your own game. Focus on what your contribution is. Focus on your strengths and then support the people around you. And I think that's what you're talking about is to say, what am I like really good at and focus on what I'm good at as opposed to all the things that are causing me stress and the things I feel I'm dropping the ball on because we all feel we dropped the ball, right? Absolutely. Even yeah. the most organized. <laughs> Even the most organized, exactly. And you are a very organized person. I know this personally because I value you as a colleague and also as a very close personal friend. And, you know, focusing on the strengths, first of all, it's the greatest gift we could give students if we teach them to do this, but we need to support the frontline workers in education with this as well. And, um, you know, it's interesting, May, I will talk with so many administrators and I will say to them, stop telling teachers they need to focus on self-care. You need to care for them. You need to show them how you value them. And, you know, and they get it when you have that kind of conversation with them is they need to feel appreciated and recognized for their strengths. That's a great point because it's not often that someone says, you know, Phil, not only did you do a great job, but I really appreciate how um, you were able to navigate that difficult conversation in the meeting. You know, something really specific um, right. that that added, you know, individualization, uniqueness um, really see, lets people feel heard and seen. Yeah. And, you know, May, you know, I do a lot of direct work modeling um, and mentoring and coaching teachers. And I always say, if I'm going to make a recommendation, I just don't want to tell you how to do it. I want to show you how to do it. And people have responded very well to that type of model of mentoring and coaching. And one of the things I always model for them, and it's related to students, is we need to do more than just saying good job or great work, like you just mentioned. You know, if a student's in a writing assignment, we need to say, that's a really strong sentence. I love all the describing words that you used. And I call that descriptive feedback. And that's what I think you're talking about. Is, exactly. Yeah. Give people descriptive feedback and recognize their strengths and then have them go through the exercise. Now, could I ask you a question about the strength exercise? Absolutely. Yeah, like when you do this with educators, how do you walk them through that process? Do you just say, give me your top five or like reflect on your day? How does that typically work? You know, I really think it's the environment. Um, so I, I already prepared them that this is not a sit and get. This is going to be an active um, type of presentation. And at the end of it, hopefully you're going to um, walk away with foundational work, you know, things that you can take home with you and build on. So it's really important, Phil, that you set the stage for that because then the activity is um, listening to music, uh, listening to a couple of example stories, and then um, going through the process of actual pen to paper. And uh, I know that our educators love uh, research and data. And so I do give them some 
um, information that supports that act, the actual act of writing something down is something that is so um, foundational to the action actually happening later. So it's one of a couple of different ones. Another one is actually sharing it with someone. So they have have the opportunity later if they want to stand up and share it. You know, not everybody does, of course. And so this is not putting anyone on the spot, but that also um, being something. And then the third one is um, having accountability. So if I say, you know, a month from now, I'm going to, um, whatever it is, uh, register my LLC, you know, start the first chapter of my book, you know, whatever that is, and actually tell someone and be accountable. So it's not just the act of kind of dreaming about it, because I think we, we probably all do that but it's definitely more concrete and a more connected way um, of starting this you know, journey. You know, I love what you said because in my mind, I was putting it into a compare contrast. Can I share with you what that is? Sure. Yeah, I, I mean, first of all, you are extremely inspiring. I've, you know, I've been interviewed by you on your podcast. And I, in so many conversations, I hear you speak, you know, whether it's publicly or sharing within a group of colleagues, but there's a big difference between the term inspiration and empowerment. Like you're not just inspiring the educators that you are working with through this type of exercise, because inspiring is great you know, it's touching your heart. I always say that, you know, inspiration is touching someone's heart, making them remember, making them feel the warm and fuzzy. But empowerment is taking the inspiration and putting it into an action plan. And that's what you're doing with this, is you're empowering people in an exercise that is then buildable. And like you said, then accountable. And that's how you really move forward, right? Absolutely. Thank you so much, Phil. I really am so honored to be on the show, you know, sharing your audience with you. And also, like you said, I've had you on my show and you've been in um, one of our books and just, I'm just so amazed at all of the things that you offer and do for our community. So I want to take a chance, a, a moment to thank you also. Oh, well, that's very nice of you to say, you know, I feel like our collaboration, anytime we get together, we just create more pixie dust, as I yes. call it. <laughs> You know, so it's very, not only inspiring, but empowering to me, May. And, you know, I look forward to when we're actually going to both meet uh, again in person and then be able yes. to pass your mind. Yeah. So let's get back to our exercise. Um, I'm going to just paraphrase uh, in my own words what you said and then jump in and clarify if I'm not getting it right. But you said, you know, one of the first things is really doing a self-reflection of what are your strengths and documenting them, not just thinking about them, but actually like you use the term pen to paper, right? Yes. So, and the written word is so powerful with putting those intentions out, isn't it? Absolutely. Even typing them. You know, I know that yeah. there are a lot of us, you know, who had handwriting back in school, but you know, nowadays kids don't. So it might be, you know, was it a point and peck? What is that? Search and peck? I can't remember what that's oh, called. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's how my husband types. He's a, he just pecks at the keyboard. I actually exactly. had a typing class in high school. Right. I did too. ASDF, you know, um, yeah. but yeah, but actually, you know, just, just putting that, that motor movement, you know, the cognitive piece to it and getting those words, you know, into writing, you know, into something real. I think that is just so powerful. Yeah. And, you know, you also said that you guide people to connect with some kind of heartfelt story, right? Like, what's a story you connect with, like that helps you make sure that you have, you know, not being overwhelmed in check and you're emotionally regulated? And what is your reminder of I, your prize? Yeah, I love this. Um, as a clinician, so someone who sits across from someone um, and brings all of your learning, you know, to that 30 minute session or 50 minute session that you have with someone. Um, it's really hard, Phil, to put aside emotions. And then when you do it for a long time, it's really hard to not be jaded and cold. You know, so there's that sweet spot that you definitely need to have where you can't be crying all the time and yet you can't be insensitive, right? right and right. so we, after years of, of doing your work, we become like we forget, you know, we forget why we chose this um, profession. We, we forget um, the passion that we had in the beginning, you know, that starry-eyed, 
you know, new teacher or, or therapist or caregiver. And um, I really encourage people to have those two or three stories that remind you, you know, whether they bring you to tears or make you laugh so hard, you fall out of your chair, you know, <laughs> yep. or just give you that pause. Right. And as I'm saying that, I'm sure your listeners are going, yes, I have that. Um, and if I could share quickly, I have two of them. One of them yeah. was um, when I was doing my initial clinical rounds in the hospital, didn't know what I was doing. And I was so afraid that um, I would put someone in medical harm, you know, by the consistency that I was choosing. Cause so you can do, um, was it puree thick? Uh, it could be mechanical soft. It could be regular, like different types of foods. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's what I was really focused on was what was I actually doing and going in and out of rooms. And I went into this one room and I am out in uh, sun city, which is a, um, a retirement area of Arizona. And so mostly Caucasian elderly. Um, I walked in this room, Phil, and in that bed was a man who looked just like my dad. And my dad oh, is a hundred percent. Yes. And uh, this man was Vietnamese descent, but literally took my breath away. Um, and he'd had a stroke and his wife was sitting next to him. And I, I couldn't even keep it together. I couldn't even walk in the room. You know, I was so choked up, just wasn't ready for that. Um, and I'll remember that forever, you know? Um, yeah. And then I got to go in and work with him and he had broken English and my dad speaks English, but still has an accent, but there was just so many similarities that I just needed to push through. And that was 16 years ago. Um, so it's, you know, really far back. Uh, and my dad is fine and healthy, but still, you know, you just, you don't expect that. And it just brought me to being just a, a person, a human, right. With real feelings. Um, and then I have another one of a student, uh, later on when I was doing, um, work in a uh, private school and this little girl could not speak and she had um, severe uh, facial um, issues where she could not masticate her food. Um, She had a a very large tongue, but this little girl would smile. Oh my God. Her smile would just light it up and uh, she couldn't speak, but she would come and touch my arm and she would hug me and she would stroke my hand. Um, She would touch my face. I mean, she was so sweet, Phil. And all I have to do is think of her and um, it just, just brings me all the warmth. Um, and I put her picture in, uh, in my chapter that um, in one of my books and she's always with me. And so these are the things that just remind you, yes. you know, of who we are and why we're doing this and that we are on the right path. Um, and for those of us who are experiencing burnout, you know, just those little Easter eggs or little golden gems that you keep yeah. um, that just recenters you. It certainly does. Well, I'm thinking of a story. I want to share a story now. Please. Yes. So, or a couple. One of them is very heartfelt. The other is funny, hysterical. Um, But I remember uh, co-teaching, mentoring a teacher who was actually a year away from retirement, if you can imagine that, May. She came to me and said, you know, I want to be able to better differentiate and reach all students of all abilities under, you know, universal design for learning. Would you mentor me? And I was humbled by Mm. this. So anyway, Gail and I were co-teaching and we were reaching a level uh, in this uh, lesson where we were reviewing uh, what oral presentations were. You know, the kids were studying about the solar system. They learned and read about it following my teaching framework, the PACT. And then the students had a big writing project where they had to pick a planet. They had to research it. They had to build a model of a planet. And we were at the point where they were going to present to the class. So I said, let's not assume the kids know all the components of an oral presentation. We need to teach this first. And so I got to the word contribution that an oral presentation is a contribution. And I said, what does a contribution mean? And this little girl, Lucy, with the brightest red hair, who was so shy and spoke in such a quiet voice, raised her hand and jumped up out of her seat. And everyone just stopped like, oh my goodness, Lucy's participating and you know, not being shy. And she just looked and she, she started to um, put her hands together and throw a, like a baseball, like as a pitch, so to speak. And she said, I think a contribution means you don't keep something to yourself oh. and you throw it out to the world. 
beautiful. Everybody just stopped. <laughs> Even now, my eyes are filled with tears. Mm-hmm. All the adults have tears in their eyes. And everybody just started clapping. And so one of the things we did, I said, okay, everybody out of their seat. We're all going to pretend we're on the Red Sox. You know, we, I live in New England and I've always been a Boston sports fan. And all, everybody said, okay, let's get ready for our old presentation. We're all going to make a contribution. And that was a really heartfelt story that when I get overwhelmed with the pace of what's in the classroom or something just doesn't go as planned or I'm overwhelmed with just my schedule in general, which can be very taxing and challenging. I think back to Lucy and, you know, and then my other student, which was funny, again, I'm co-teaching in a classroom and we were doing a social studies unit And, you know, kids say the darndest things. And sometimes you just need to remember those funny things to get you through the day. And we were learning about patriotic symbols and, you know, like Statue of Liberty and, um, you know, the Star Spangled Banner, all of that. And so we're pulling all these beautiful laminated pictures that the teacher had for like 20 years out of this bag. And we were learning about what they meant. But the students had to guess as to what they were because we wanted to do a little, you know, pre-assessment of prior knowledge. And so one little boy pulls the Star Spangled Banner out of, and it was like music notes. Mm. And he looks and he goes, uh, um, and he's looking at me. And I said, what do you see? Take a guess at what you think that is, because you're learning about patriotic symbols in in social studies and he said it's a bunch of music notes from somebody who's probably dead oh my god (laughs) I couldn't even look at the teacher you know I mean little Braden he was just adorable and you know you know those are those times where you just say I love what I do I really love what I do and that's what this episode was about is I want to do a shout out to our listeners to be able to say, recognize your strengths, like Maylin is advising you. Make sure you connect with your special stories and remember them at your low because they will lift you up, right, May? Absolutely. Yep. And uh, anything else you would like to share with our listeners before we wrap up? Well, I really think that writing things down is essential um, and don't be afraid. You know, I think a lot of times you're like, oh, if I write this, then I'm, you know, I'm bound to it. Um, but it's more of the act of doing it, the process of doing it, the journey rather than the actual, you know, what it looks like. Yeah. And I guess what I would like to say as a shout out to all educators, don't leave. We need you. The kids need you, right, May? Yeah, it's amazing. We, you don't know how many lives you touch, you know, in, in yeah. one, even just one semester. Incredible. How many children will come up years later? You know, families will say that. And um, we've heard so many times later with adults, you know, who have gone through therapy, just saying how that one speech therapist made a difference in their lives. And of course, we know that that's the case with teachers. So yeah, yeah we, we definitely need you. Well, we mentioned your three best-selling books. Could you do a shout out of uh, where people can find those and maybe the titles? Yes, thank you so much. It's called the Becoming Exceptional Leader. It's a series. So the first one is the same title. The second one is Becoming an Exceptional AAC Leader, which focuses on alternative and augmentative communication leaders, um, both people who use AAC to speak and also people who have been just dynamic people in the field. Um, And the last one is becoming an exceptional SLP leader, which focuses on speech language pathologists. And all of them are available on Amazon uh, as a paperback and also as a digital download. Thank you. And your website, if people want to contact you? Absolutely. I made it really easy. You can find me at mailingchan.com. Wonderful. That's M-A-I-L-I-N-G-C-H-A-N.com, mailingchan.com. And if you'd like to know more about my work or about the PACT framework, you can go to aboutthepact.com. That's about, A-B-O-U-T, the, T-H-E, PACT, P-A-C-T, 
www.mayandimaymusic.com. And Neil, I know that May and I were just like sitting and having tea no, together. No, no, I want to add, you know, we talk about talents and skill. Yeah. Very important to know your talents because if you don't know your talents and focus on strengthening them, you lose your track and where you're supposed to go, you know, and uh, that's huge. And I think that you, the information you're able to bring is that really value what you can do well and think about that as a teacher. And don't think that be, you're not talented because we all have our special talents and we have to really continue to hone in on them and grow them, no doubt. And Neil, another one of my special stories is remembering when you and I were in a Zoom and you said to me, I think you should do a podcast and I'd like to produce it for you. And I'm very grateful for that. Oh, well, thank you. I, I think if you're, you're a natural at this, Phil, and uh, it's great to bring the education and especially positive things in education. So I'm glad to co-host with you. So I appreciate it. Such great information again today. Thank you again, uh, ladies. And uh, that was Every Child Can Learn, guys, and take care. We're back to the Neil Haley Show here on the Caregiver Dave Celebrity Segment. I'm excited to welcome the program Caregiver Dave to Sandy. Dave, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing fantastic as well. And our guest today is a very famous director and uh, creator, Kim Bass. And he's going to talk about Tyson's run and much, much more. Kim, thanks for stopping by. How are you? Hey, thank you for having me. And I'm doing just fine. It's opening day for uh, my film, Tyson's Run Nationwide. So I'm having a good day. It definitely seems like a good day. It's a great story. But let's start out. Did you always want to be a director, creator, things like that growing up? when you were a kid? I always wanted to be a storyteller and, and be a filmmaker, even though at the time I was so young, I didn't exactly know what that was. Uh, my grandfather took me to my first film when I was seven years old. We actually got on a city bus and drove out of our neighborhood and went to a kind of a nicer neighborhood and to a theater called the Uptown Theater in Utica, New York, which is in upstate New York. And I watched my first movie, which was a Disney film titled Miracle of the White Stallions. And I was so impacted by the experience that when I got home that evening, I told my mother that I wanted to do that. And who, who makes movies? And she told me it, it was done in a place far away called Hollywood by some people there. And I said to my mother, I said, I think they're the magic people. And when I grow up, I'm going to be one of the magic people. That's great. We're talking about Mike Tyson, right? Yeah. <laughs> Not exactly. Not exactly. Uh, so, so, but so he always, so when you think <laughs> about things, Kim, in, in so many ways, getting your dreams to come true, where do you think that process started after you said, this is what I want to do? How did that process start and continue? Tell us. Well, truth be told, I've always been sort of a kid who, focused on things obsessively and it's something I just wanted to do. And I was fortunate enough to have loved ones around me who encouraged me uh, and, and more specifically my mother. She said, not only is that what you want to do, she goes, it's exactly what you're going to do. And you need to believe that and move forward toward that goal. And she told me that when I was seven years old. And so the thought of being a filmmaker or being a storyteller, being in in the, the business never ever left my head. And so I, I give my mom a lot of credit, but certainly a lot of those around me who also encouraged me and supported me as I just sort of put one foot in front of the other, always staying focused on, on that uh, goal. Yeah. All right, so tell us about Tyson's story. Tyson's run, Tyson's run, Dave. I, but I, want to run. Go, I want to jump a little bit before I get that. Let's get continuing about this. So where do you think that big break came? And talk a little bit about the whole big break process. That So you started working hard and the opportunities came. What do you think were the things that got you the opportunities to create these amazing shows that really just made your career such a success? Well, the first break that I had so to speak, was actually in Japan, where I was living and studying martial arts and teaching at a private language college, teaching English conversation. And I met 
a man named Junichi Takahashi, who was an agent and a producer, who had me audition for a television show. And I actually got the gig and I ended up on a Japanese television show. And then mm. I did other shows and got into movies there and stage. And so at that point, I was actually either on stage or on camera. And I thought, you know, maybe that would get me back to the States where I could do acting work here in Hollywood. And I ended up in a movie with Jackie Chan called The Protector. And after that, I decided to move back to the United States thinking, okay, this, I, the door is open. I'm going to come back to the US after being in Japan for five years and having done a movie with Jackie Chan, all's going to be well. Well, the problem is I'm not a good actor. As a matter of fact, I'm terrible at it. So that wasn't, that wasn't going to work out too well. And I turned my attention to writing, thinking that perhaps I could write something that I could be in since no one would really cast me in anything. And I wrote my first screenplay, finished it on a Friday. Uh, I'm sorry, finished it on a Thursday, gave it to a producer on a Friday and ended up optioning that screenplay to a production company on Tuesday. And I, that began my writing career. Wow. And you know, when you talk about the writing career, in, in so many ways. And uh, it's something that you figured out your stuff. You figured out your secret sauce. You liked the industry. You love the acting business. You just, you, it wasn't acting. So what do you think makes you such a really good writer and then creator? Well, I don't know if I label myself as a really good writer, but I like to write stories and I've stumbled my way into some modest degree of success, I suppose. But I liked telling stories even when I was a kid. You know, I grew up in a house with uh, a brother and four sisters who were all very funny, who were all very creative. So, you know, we would entertain, you know, each other. As a matter of fact, it's, it's funny that I'm the one who's quote unquote, the filmmaker in the family because uh, we got our first little Super 8 camera when we were all very young. And for Christmas, I fell asleep. And when I woke up, my brothers and sisters had made a movie, which <laughs> I got to watch <laughs> called Christmas Rally. And so they always played with the camera. I never actually touched it much, but I always, again, wanted to be, be, a, be a filmmaker. But it was always my burning, burning desire to you know, put something on the big screen and have that same experience I had that first time when my grandfather took me to the- So when you optioned your first writing, deal what did it what was the show that you ended up doing first writing well that was a, a screenplay and it was entitled popsicle soldiers an action piece and it was actually optioned three times and so that sort of started to prime the pump certainly financially where i could you know pay my rent and, and stay in hollywood and while that was under option i ended up being introduced to damon wayans from in living color fame and my my wife and kids and we began a relationship and soon after meeting him i ended up writing two sketches for him to perform on not necessarily the news the hbo show and then from that we did a music video for motown and uh soon after that i in the warner brothers writers workshop uh with uh, a writing partner donald lamoureux and while being in that Warner Brothers Writers Workshop for sitcoms, I got the call from In Living Color to come and pitch. I pitched and next thing you know, I'm a staff writer on In Living Color, nominated for an Emmy and we did you know, some pretty good work over there and for two, two seasons. And once that was over, I was offered an overall deal at Fox uh, Television at the studio level and did some work there on a show called True Colors, which was under my deal. Okay. And, and I created Sister Sister and then created Keenan and Kel and it all the ball just started rolling. So, you know, meeting, uh, you said Damon, is that who? Yes. Well, yeah, Damon um, Williams, yes. How did that, how did that story of meeting? Because you know how this industry works. It's all about the specific meeting. We all have talent. It's just meeting the right person, right place, right time. How did that, how did that develop that you got to meet him? Well, I, I optioned my screenplay, uh, as I said, to a producer, and that producer was uh, an acquaintance of Damon's manager, Eric Gold, at the time. And apparently he had a conversation, just you know, found this new writer. He wrote a terrific script. We just optioned it. We intend to make this movie. And he said, really? And I got a call and saying, hey, well, maybe he's got some other good ideas. 
and Damon read the script and then wanted to talk to me about a film he was writing, a screenplay that he was writing. So he actually asked for the meeting. And once we met, we um, you know got along and the rest as it. And then being part of In Living Color, that's gotta be amazing, right? How many superstars did you run into in In Living Color? Well, you know, it's, uh, we, we had some talented folks. I mean, Damon was there, Jim Carrey, of course. Yeah. Uh, J-Lo and uh, Tommy Davidson. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we just had so many folks who came through there, uh, Jamie Foxx. And so and sometimes, uh, let's see, Whoopi Goldberg came on to guest star. And so we had a pretty good time. You know, Bruce Willis came to the set <laughs> because he was getting ready to do a movie with Damon. So it was it was interesting you know people think comedy is easy it's it's a lot of hard work and the show the exec producer of the show of course um was damon's brother keenan yeah and you know he yeah. ran a pretty tight ship and we you know we had a lot of fun writing a lot of good things with a lot of good writers on the show so i was just fortunate to be among them one of the best comedy things that really changed comedy in so many ways and it really brought i guess the suburban to urban that's in living color with yeah, that's a good way, good way to put it that's absolutely right. i mean because i mean i grew up and i'm like wow and then you just really said never thought of these different things and fox shows developed i uh interviewed the voice of bart simpson uh nancy cartwright a couple months ago and just think about that that fox team wow you know of the shows on fox yeah, a lot of married with there. children in living color the Simpsons, and then what the shows you developed after. I mean, it's just like that Fox time was just a special time because it changed television. And I wish that they show more of that, right? Give a little bit more of a highlight how it changed television. Yeah, it was, uh, well, they, they took a chance on a lot of things that some of the other networks weren't taking chances on. And so it, it paid off and it, it was a good breeding ground for many of us. So I appreciate you know that experience. Absolutely. All right, Dave. So we're back to you in this. So basically, I am a huge fan of In Living Color. He created other shows. We're going to get into Tyson's run because I love the whole story of autism because I am a former educator that worked in the autism community. So I'm really excited about uh, talking more about that. But I'm going to pass it back to you, Dave, for any other questions you have for Kim, and then we'll get into Tyson's run. Well, you're very successful, obviously. Um, and some people believe that success is a lot of hard work. Some people think it's just being in the right place at the right time. Some people think it's a combination of the two. What do you attribute your, your success to? And, and have you exceeded your goals and expectations of where you would be at this age? Well, uh, I think it is a combination of both. You have to be, opportunities, I believe, are, are surrounding people all the time. But you have to be prepared to take advantage of the opportunities when they avail themselves to you. So, and, and being prepared means having done the work so that you walk in the door, you know, uh, ready to go. You got to be able to hit the ground running because, you know, the entertainment business, you know, that second word business is, is sort <laughs> of the powerful part, right? And you got to be ready to do some business. And I feel that you meet some good people, but you got to bring something that is valuable to the process. And I've been fortunate enough, enough to meet some really good people and get some help along the way but I feel that I've had some, some maybe not great ideas, but some good ideas that others saw value in. And therefore, the opportunities um, were sort of presented to me. And then, but you got to be ready to, like I said, to go, to go right through that door when it opens. Now, the story of Tyson's Run, you're the director. Did you write this as well, Tyson's Run, or just direct? I did. I wrote the screenplay, directed it, and I'm one of the oh. Okay, so tell us how you came up with the story for this. So I was, one morning I was at uh, my son's uh, elementary school and there was a young boy who sort of lagged behind when the other boys dashed off running across the, you know, the field at the school. And I asked him why he didn't keep running and he said that he... He said, I know I'm fast, but all the other boys are super fast. And so he doesn't like, he said he didn't like to run it anymore because they, he always felt left behind. He felt dejected. He felt a distance from the other kids. And so that touched me. And that started the, to percolate in my mind. 
And then as time went on, I started looking at what was going on in society where everyone's fighting for their rights, uh, to be included, to not be discriminated against. And so that nugget of an idea grew into what now is Tyson's run. And so the, the talking about connecting autism to this, was that story, how's that bring the, the autism community into this as well? Well, I have friends who have some children who are on the spectrum. And I, so I had a sort of a firsthand view at sort of the challenges that they were going through and their concerns about whether or not their children would be included into, in society and how they would be treated at school. And so I thought that autism itself would be a vehicle that I could utilize to tell a more universal story because it's, it's so prevalent in society and the parents uh, feel so challenged and sometimes feel so uh, on their own uh, separate from other folks in society. And so I thought that would be a good vehicle by which we could explore inclusion, explore acceptance, explore determination and forgiveness and, and the family dynamics. Yeah. Uh, you know, I have a grandson who's uh, on the spectrum. He's Asperger's. And Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.